Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Jerry Shea is on the show today. Jerry is a classically trained actor who grew up in Boston and attended Boston College. He then went to the prestigious Tisch School in New York and not long after that got a starring role on Broadway as Giorgio in Stephen Sondheim's Passion. By the way, if you're interested in seeing that exact Broadway production of the musical Passion, it's available in its entirety on YouTube. Jerry was nominated for a Tony in that musical, and then went on to star in the crime thriller Southie with Donnie Wahlberg, Lawrence Tierney, Rose McGowan, and Will Arnett. Then Jerry took an unusual turn for a successful actor. I won't spoil what that turn was here in the intro, but I think you'll really enjoy hearing Jerry talk about the choices he made after achieving so much success in theater and film. Jerry's more recent work can be seen on the Showtime series City on a Hill, in which he plays a police detective in Boston in the early 90s. Produced by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, Jerry's co-stars in the series include Kevin Bacon, Sarah Shahi, Aldous Hodge, Jonathan Tucker, and Mark O'Brien, among many other super talented actors. If you haven't seen City on a Hill yet, check it out on Showtime. It's a crime drama set in the early 90s, and I don't think this era is portrayed a lot in TV and film. The acting is superb, and the characters are colorful and unique. It makes for great television. After checking out City on a Hill, be on the lookout for Jerry's next movie, Jungle Land, with Charlie Hunnam, which should be making the film festival circuit soon and hit theaters after that. I had a great time getting to know Jerry and hearing his story, and I hope you will as well. So please enjoy this wide-ranging discussion with Jerry Shea. Jerry Shea, welcome to Dream Path. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so um, I have looked at your work over the last several months. I know we, we connected a few months ago, and I've, mm-hmm. I've been really digging into your work, which started uh, apparently back in the uh, the early 90s with Passion on Broadway. and. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Passion is available to view start to finish uh, with you and the cast on YouTube. Oh, you know, my kids shared that with me a few years ago. And I said, hey, guys, I think you're old enough to watch this one. And I said, oh, we watched it years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of risque, isn't it? <laughs> it is the first, the first 10 minutes or so. Are, yeah, the first scene. I mean, it's pretty intense. It raised some eyebrows for sure, especially in those days. Yeah. So how did you find yourself on a Broadway stage? I know you started, I looked at your background, you started at Boston College and went to Tisch Mm -hmm. after that. Um, But tell us how you found your way to Broadway. Well, you know, I mean, I got to say uh, uh, huge blessings and a lot of luck and some great people around me. I was fortunate enough to go to a great school for undergraduate, um, you know, to learn about theater. I had always known my whole life that I wanted to be a storyteller in some form or fashion. And and acting seemed to me the most accessible thing, the thing I understood the best. Uh, And so I I went to BC, Boston College, and, and knew that I wanted further training. Uh, signed on and it was lucky enough to get into NYU uh, at Tisch School and and uh, it's sort of one thing leads to another like in like any career I, I, I had a great opportunity to be part of the ensemble for a show in a, a play uh, Shakespeare in the Park in the Delacorte Theater in New York now it was as you like it it was I was playing a singing lord so basically a spear carrier but they handed me a guitar at one point and asked me to sing a song too and uh and so just with little notices from that, uh, from that uh, performance, I was able to, um, I, I, I was asked to join 
the ensemble for a Broadway show called Guys and Dolls that had opened about four months before that. And one of the understudies for Peter Gallagher, who was playing Sky Masterson, he um, they needed they needed that the original understudy left, and I came on board. And uh, so I played I played the drunk in the show uh, for about a year, and I went on as Sky Masterson about four times when Peter would go off and loop a film. And uh, you know, after about a year, I, I decided to sort of spread my wings, and and uh, I auditioned for a show called Damn Yankees that was out at the Old Globe, and um, I, that was sort of in the in the pre Broadway tryout. And uh, I wound up in the meantime being asked to audition for for Passion uh, with Stephen Sondheim. It was just one of those things where it was the right age, the right type, I guess, and and. Uh, I could sing, and and uh, we all just sort of clicked and agreed it would be a good idea. So I, I just felt incredibly fortunate to have that opportunity so quickly out of school. I was out of school, I think, a total of a year and a half, two years um, by the time that show rolled around for me. So I, I, I still scratch my head about how that happened. It's very fortunate. So when you were in high school, did you know that you could sing? I did know, although I have to say in high school, I sort of was in denial about it. Um, you know, I grew up in a, a pretty blue collar neighborhood. I like to say a no collar neighborhood, uh, you know, working class people who had their noses to the grindstone. Um, there wasn't a lot of money around. Um, and so, you know, the arts were a luxury. Um, so not that people didn't appreciate music and beauty. Um, God knows we did in an Irish neighborhood like mine, but it was something that it wasn't useful to me on a social level with my friends. I, I took more ribbing for it than anything. Um, you know, it's I'd, actually I'd, harmful it, to you. It actually hurt. It actually hurt my uh, my uh, reputation here and there. You know, I'd sing at weddings and funerals, that sort of things. My mom would always make me do that, which I'm grateful for now. You know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So I knew I could sing from a young age, and and I, I played the guitar, and so music has always been a part of my life. But I never really aspired to to uh, be on a Broadway st- stage singing. Um, you know, show tunes uh, growing up. Um, and I had a wonderful teacher, Deborah Lapidus, who really turned me on to it at, at Tisch at, at NYU and, and really showed me how it needs to be done to be really great. And, and uh, I just feel it's, it's just such a high form of acting that um, it's right up there for me with, with classical theater, you know, with, with uh, Shakespeare and J- Jacoby and, and great dramas. Yeah. I mean, and talk about challenging material. You go into Shakespeare as you like it, um, all the way to Stephen Sondheim on Broadway, which is not, this is not for the faint of heart as an actor and a singer. I mean, these are really complex tunes that are, they're not pop tunes. I mean, these are tough songs to learn and to perform. And, um, and, and so you go through Boston College. Did you get the classical voice training that, that you would expect a, a Broadway star to, to receive? Or did you go about it a different way? You know, I, at Boston College, it was a liberal arts school, and I was a theater major, so theater arts degree. Um, it wasn't a fine arts program, so it was not uh, what uh, I think anyone would really consider a professional training program. It was a really wonderful place to learn about theater and storytelling and gain experience. Um, and, and some confidence. I knew that I needed those technical skills that I would pick up at a place like NYU. So I, I applied to, you know, the, some of the, the top schools and NYU, Yale, Juilliard. I got into NYU and that was my, my, the place I really wanted to go. And I just felt so lucky to do that because I knew that I, I wanted to, to work on classical theater. I, I also, it was really important to me to have a background and and things that, you know, in other words, people call the method Stanislavski and, and, and others like Meisner. And there's a real sort of uh, mix of disciplines there and, and techniques 
that our teachers kind of fuse together to um, to to make a, a training program. So I learned many many styles of acting and, and the approach to acting itself. Uh, but the technical pieces of it, you know, speech, dialect, um, singing, voice, um, and all of those technical requirements that are so important when you're doing theater and eight shows a week, um, they, they come into play at a school like that in a conservatory setting. So it wasn't until grad school that I really um, started to become steeped in those skills. And at Tisch, who, who did you come up with? Who were you surrounded by in terms of... Um you know, uh, acting talent and uh, stage I, talent. We had any sort of, if I, I look two years before and two years after to um, some of my favorite actors are there. Um, in, in my class, we had 17 of us, Ntare Gumambahomwine, who is on The Shy um, now on Showtime, is just a, a wonderful actor um, who uh, actually spent some of his childhood in, in um, he's Ugandan and American. And he spent some of his childhood in Brookline, which is about 20 minutes from where I grew up in Hyde Park in Boston. Uh, Neil Huff, who is on Broadway right now with, uh, with uh, Jeff Daniels in To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, there were people a couple of years before me. Uh, Marsha Gay Harden was uh, two or three years before me. Um, Garrett Dillahunt, who is, a, I think, a consummate character actor. Uh, that I always admired. Um, and he's someone who, in fact, just played three roles, three different roles in a uh, in in Deadwood. Uh, one in the in the movie that just came out this year too. You know, someone who just is a chameleon. Um, so many other people. Deborah Messing, um, Billy Crudup was uh, a year or two behind me there. Uh, Michael Gaston. These are these are people. Whether you know their names or not, uh, you've seen their faces about a million times on television and in movies. People that you know, if you're sort of in the business and you you know your actors, uh, I consider them real the actors. Actors. Another guy is Dave Zabel. David Zabel was a really fine actor who was in my class and went on. He was also a very talented writer who wound up being showrunner for ER for many many years and writes films and television shows to this day. Yeah, Garrett is a is a pretty special character actor, and he uh, sure is. It, it, he is actually from my hometown of. Um, well, he's from Sela. I live in Sela. Oh, great! Um, yeah. yeah, so he's kind of a, a local legend around here. Oh, yeah, he should. He's a legend everywhere. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's a good friend. He and Michelle Hurd, his wife, they're really wonderful actors and and, and wonderful people. So when you're you're surrounded by all this wonderful talent at Tisch. Um, at the time, are you seeing the trajectory of these folks and, you know, can you really see how great they are? Or are you just too deep in it to really know what's going to happen and how special these people are? I think, I think both things. You know, people who came out uh, a year or two before me started to hit with things. Pete Krauser, Cameron Manheim, who after, after a few years of, of you know, hammering away, uh, pounding the pavement, really, her career really took off. Another person who you know, I should say is, I admire greatly. You know, um, so you'd see things start to happen from people. Um, and you saw people over the years, uh, Michael McKeon um, was in, in a class in, in a few decades before me. Uh, you'd see these things happen to people who came through the program. So everyone's dreaming, gee, I hope that happens for me. But ultimately, you have to be yourself and, and, and have your own career and, and take your lumps um, like everybody else does. But in a day-to-day, everyone's sort of sweating and straining and 
sometimes being so frustrated, we punch holes in walls and break chairs. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion and sturm und drang about the process for, for a lot of us. Um, so it can be a real struggle and a slog. Um, and it seems like sometimes you're not going to make it through that third year, but ultimately you'll look at the folks who've gotten out before you and, and done well. But you also have to have a just sort of something inside you that says, you know, I can do this too. I can do this. And it may or may not happen for me, but I'm going to stay in the fight and trust that I do have some of these skills already in place. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a leap of faith. And you know that, I mean, I guess there's got to be something inside of you that knows that just because you got into the program, which is so storied and, and historic, that they saw something in you that was pretty special as well. Right. You know, and it, I, I remember asking Ron Van Loo, who was the head of the program uh, with Zelda Fitch Handler, um, and he was sort of our guru. He was the he was the guy everyone wanted to please in our in our scene study classes. I remember saying to him after the, our first year, "Why did you allow me in?" You know, and <laughs> you know, I was really struggling with, "Do I want to come back?" Or, you know, I, I did have some opportunities to um, to get an agent. Um, you know, sort of close to halfway through and. I knew that I was not nearly ready. That's the one thing you learn is what you don't know. You learn, you learn very quickly that you're not ready to go out there in the world and do what you really aspire to do ultimately. But you could go out and possibly make a living, but you hope for more. So, you know, I, I always wondered, uh, you know, and I, to this day, I'm like, geez, how, how did I get in based on that audition? I remember how <laughs> I was. And I, trust me, I was not good. <laughs> so do you, have you ever had what um, I've referred to and, and I think others do as well as imposter syndrome? That's a, yeah, I, I think that would apply. There, there are times, I, I, you know, I think and I've done a lot of things for a living too. And, and, and frankly, that's something that at any point along the learning curve uh, early on in those first few months or even years, you, you, you can feel that from time to time. I think that's human nature, right? I mean, there, there are people who I, I think never have it. And those are the people I sort of am concerned about. <laughs> right. Well, it, it was uh, Bruce Springsteen, whose uh, 70th birthday was yesterday. Uh, yeah, was, uh, I heard that. Um, I think he was quoted as saying, uh, you, you should think that you're the baddest ass in town and also that you suck. It keeps you honest. I think and, that's a really good approach. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Both you know? those things are helpful. You need them both. You really do. Right. So let's let's fast forward from Tish to the Broadway stage, and you are um, you're on stage with all of these wonderful actors, and you are featured pretty much in every scene. I I watched it on YouTube, and mm -hmm. I was struck by how much time you were up there singing and and saying lines, and in the spotlight is on you. Mm -hmm. Is that exhausting? You know. Uh, I, I will say uh, this before I answer that. I mean, uh, my father was a school teacher. My brothers were firefighters. My, uh, I have a sister who was a teacher. My mom raised five kids, you know, uh, a brother who worked with disabled people. They work really hard. They work really hard. That's exhausting work. So I feel really lucky and like I'm the slacker and black sheep of the family for sure. <laughs> That said, two hours on stage uh, and running around, um, and, and then when I'm not on stage, I'm running uh, behind the scrim or under the deck to get back on the other side and make another entrance. Yeah, it can be pretty exhausting, but in the end, you know, when you have 1,500 people, 2,000 people clapping for you at the end of the night, uh, <laughs> it's a wash. It's, it's pretty good. Actually, I come out way ahead when, when you, there, it's, it, there's nothing like it. Um, and to be working with people who are working just as hard as you, so, for some reason, it's all relative to that. Everybody's pulling in the same direction, and I feel, I feel like I'm fed every night um, and energized by the end of it. 
but yeah, you, you sweat. It, it's, it is a lot of work and you have to get your rest and eat right and uh, stay in shape to, to do it. Where, now, was it five days a week, six days a week? How many shows were you doing per week? So we'd, get, we'd get one day off. It'd be one day a week. And usually in the theater, it's, it's Mondays. Uh, that's the, you know, they say theaters are dark on Mondays and most of them are. Um, so we had eight, eight shows a week over, over a six-day period. Eight, eight shows a week on, for yeah. six, six days a week. And, and what happens when, I mean, I just, everything has to go right in a Broadway production or any type of production, but on Broadway, the stakes are so high. Um, is there just a constant level of stress about something going wrong? Somebody getting sick, um, you know, their voice goes out or I don't know. I mean, any family emergencies, uh, you know, understudy problems. What are the challenges that you remember from that experience? You know, I, I think it's one of those things where there are people who, uh, whose job it is to plan for contingencies to have backups and backups for the backups. You know, um, if, if a set piece doesn't move in and out, they're going to be people in clothing to kind of sneak out on stage when the lighting cue changes and move that set piece off stage. Uh, so things do happen all the time in the theater. We had we had, uh, Marin Maisie and I, um, she just passed away uh, just over a year ago. Um, she was, I played opposite Marin, who was just a, was a brilliant person, star, a human being. She was um, Clara, she and I, right? She was Clara, yeah. yeah. And, and we had this scene at the beginning, this, the scene you alluded to earlier, that um, we had this nude scene and we were getting into the bed on the set before the curtain rises and suddenly the curtain rises and the house lights are still up and everyone just looks up at us and I just wave to the, to the crowd, you know, and we just <laughs> turned and smiled at the crowd and say, see you in a few minutes and the curtain eventually came back down. We started the show over again. You know, those things happen all the time in theater and, and there are times in a run when you do something close to a year or even more sometimes where you, you, you welcome those things because it, it sets, the, it resets the tone uh, and, and it puts everybody on edge in a really wonderful way um, so that every night, it, it reminds you that every night needs to happen for the first time. Um, anything can happen. A prop can break. Someone can go up on a line. And there are times and words would come out of my mouth that were not written by Stephen Sondheim. And, I, you know, he'd be backstage smiling at me. Uh, after the performance, I said, I was just writing myself a little Sondheim musical for you tonight. Um, <laughs> things happen. You know, you, you have these little brain tweaks that, that happen over the course of a, of a, a show that, that you just embrace and, and trust that something good is on the other side of that if you stay relaxed. Did you ever have a chance to meet uh, Stephen Sondheim? To meet him? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, he was, he was uh, the person. He and James Lapine and Wendy Ettinger and Scott Rudin, um, they were all present um, and were the people who made the decision, ultimately Steve and, and James and the producers, um, Jerry Schoenfeld, the, the, the uh, Schubert organization, were all present and speaking with me and putting me through the paces during the audition process. So, yeah, I got to meet Steve and work with him. He was there um, very frequently, especially at the beginning. He was there throughout most, I think, I'm pretty sure all of our preview performances. And he would come back in at least sometimes weekly or monthly to check in on the run. And every once in a while, he'd even tweak the show after we ran. Um, he was, he's a perfectionist and it's always about the details with him. So he was around quite a bit. I, I, I know I have recordings of him singing, teaching us the music. So it's, it was, it was cool. Yeah. We definitely felt that we had access to him and he always had access to us. You know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about theater is the, the knowledge, even if it's not conscious, but it's, there's this subconscious understanding that what you're seeing is never going to happen again in this exact mm -hmm. same way. 
you know, don't I like you it. love it? <laughs> oh man, it, it's just yeah. it's so exciting. Plus, you know, there's all these contingencies and these things that can happen that kind of keep you on the edge of your seat sometimes. You know, if someone you know flubs a line or something, and you know, it just it just really is exciting. Uh, even when people aren't flubbing lines, you know, you're you're seeing something that is just extremely unique and now. Yeah, and yeah. it has to be. It has to be life for the audience. I mean, they pay a lot of money to sit there and to be moved or entertained, and and uh, it has to be fresh every night so that it can just happen for them. And when you try to repeat a performance, it, it's stale for everybody. Nobody has any fun. Where do you think Broadway and theater has gone? Is it in the same place that it was back in the early '90s, where you, when you were on stage, um, or is there? Are we in a different place now because of how how spread out and diluted our attention span is with all of the content that's available, with streaming, and you know, it just seems like a more challenging space to be in from the outside looking in. But what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. It's one I haven't thought too much about, but just off the top of my head, I can tell you that the the shows and the plays that I've seen now really respond to that and understand those audiences. It's really hard to get a production on Broadway uh, anyway. And by the time it does, it's been put through those paces uh, and, and it's really been measured by that contemporary yardstick. It, are people going to be able to, to latch on and feed <laughs> on this production um, for two hours, two and a half hours, uh, and, and sometimes three hours a night? They're, they're built in a way that I, I think by artists who are very connected and aware of what's going on in the world, and you'll see technology being used sometimes in, uh, that's fused into the production itself, and people are tweeting along with the, with the show, and that is harnessed in some way. But yeah, I, mean, I, think, uh, I, I think we do have to think about, gee, can someone physically sit in a chair for three hours in a night now? I, I think that is a question that has to be answered. But if you find if someone's shifting around in their chair, it may be something that you can fix. Um, you know, it, it may be something about the show that maybe we're losing the attention. So there's so many factors that have always been there. Um, you, it's easy to lose an audience, uh, especially when you start trying to fake your way through a show or, or, or you're sort of um, whitewashing over a part of the, of, the, of the piece, the written material that, that still needs to be reworked, that sort of thing. So I think some of the old rules still apply. You have to entertain. You have to really grab hold of your audience and, and don't let go of them. But that said, people are not used to sitting there. And that's a really, it's a really good question. The, I, I think if, you, if the quality is high, like something like Hamilton, um, like something like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, and, and the performances are strong, people do, are still the same. They're going to be moved. You know, think of how long you sit with your loved ones uh, at dinner. Some nights, four or five hours, you know, and, and you say, oh my God, it's midnight. We just sat down here. And if you're moved and you're, and you're connected and invested on an emotional level or an intellectual level, the night flies by. So I, I like to think that we're, we're doing fine with that. Um, it just really, it's really going to, that's a question that's going to be answered over time. Yeah. Let's go back in time a little bit, um, back to your childhood and your influences. It sounds like your dad was a teacher. He was a teacher, yeah, a history teacher and, um, in, in Boston schools. Yeah. Any, any, anybody in your family or um, mentors that you had growing up who were in the arts that made it seem possible for you to do what you do now? You know, um, it, it, I, like I say, I, I grew up in a neighborhood where it was not really something that was front of mind for most people. Um, uh, my, early, my early influences were um, 
were people in movies, um, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, uh, John Savage, people, and they, they all happen to be in one of my favorite films, The Deer Hunter, you know, things like that, that I would see as a younger person in my early teens, or when I was still in elementary school, I'd sneak on these movies and I'd watch them, and those are the things that moved me. So I, I really kind of, uh, when I thought about being a storyteller and an actor, I always thought about it being things that were on camera, and ultimately that's something I've also been very fortunate to be able to do. Um, so theater was not something that I was exposed to growing up. My sister was the first person to invite me into the theater. She was at a, a little Catholic girls' school in the next town over. She we, she'd sort of truck over into into this place called Milton to this academy, and they needed she was, it was all girls. And they needed boys to be in the shows and and in the plays. And she said, "Hey, do you want to come over and do this?" And I did it to meet girls, you know, <laughs> like a lot of people do, I guess. But um, that was that was my my introduction to it. I had no idea what I was doing. I was terrible. I was a pain in the ass um, to the director and everybody around me. I was just an immature little punk kid who was running around just wanting to have fun, you know. But I, I quickly learned that there's a real work ethic to it, and that you have to take it seriously, and that and that there are skills that you have to develop over time that no one is great when they start out and that you can really work your way toward being great um, over time. So that was, that was something I have to thank my sister for inviting me in, my sister Sarah, who is also a, who is a wonderful actor and director who now teaches in, in, um, and, and actually went on to teaching and now she's in real estate in Massachusetts. So um, yeah, so she was my biggest influence, I think, the person who really triggered this in me and, and, and said, you can do it. So when you got into the, you got into acting at Tisch and uh, started to study the various methods, Stanislavski and, and Meisner, did you find yourself kind of gravitating toward one type of school of thought on acting versus another? Or did you try to throw them all into your psyche and see what happens? I, I think the, one of the best things about NYU is that it is a real, a real collage uh, of ideas. Uh, and and uh, I find that Stanislavski and, and Meisner and, and Uta Hagen and Strasberg, all these things that are, have the same roots in something um, that we find there's an emotional truth that we all try to tap into and understand. At any given point, in any given role uh, along the way, I, I can just use a skill from one or the other. Um, it, it, it's something that I think people now say, oh, he's a method actor or she's a method actor. And that definition has really gotten lost over the years. And there are things that were traditionally called the method, like Stanislavski, that, and, and there are different methods that people can name. But in the end, uh, I think the great ones, the most useful ones that, that, have been, uh, that have been helpful to me have been things that I've sort of pieced together uh, from all of that work. Uh, there are nights where I say, geez, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really finding this moment anymore. What am I doing wrong? And it comes back to something very technical that maybe taking a breath at a certain point, that if I'm singing um, or, or, or maybe hold, holding the breath until the next line, you know, that can really do something in your body internally that, that does something emotionally to you. So there are technical approaches that I can just, I can call upon those uh, over the run of a show or in a rehearsal process. So it's a, bottom line, it's a real mishmash for me. And that's, that's, um, that's sort of the fun of it, to decide in any, at any point along the way in a role. So, gee, what's going to work today for me? Um, and I try to be as flexible as possible with that. Does that process of learning uh, the nuances of all of these methods um, and these approaches to acting, does that process ever end? Or are you constantly taking classes and learning from, from others? 
it, it, it's a lifelong thing. And, and I, I do a lot of teaching. And, and for me right now, that, that has been sort of the formal classes. The classes that I teach are classes for me because I, I'm in an incubator with, with um, usually younger, uh, you know, people college age and sometimes high school age or even younger at times, uh, uh, aspiring actors. I learn from working with them. Um, and I'm supposed to be the teacher, but just seeing them work teaches me so much. So my formal training has continued right along the way. And anybody who stops learning or feels they, they're done and they know how to do this thing, um, I think they're, they're cutting themselves short. They're selling themselves short and uh, they're missing out on, on a lifetime of, I think, enjoyment. Uh, I'm never going to consider myself a great actor because I, I, great to me, I, mean, I know there are some wonderful great actors out there and man, I'm still working toward it. So, yeah, I, I, I hope I haven't learned everything <laughs> uh, that I'm going to learn. Uh, I know I haven't learned everything that I need to learn. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy. Just an email about each week's episode featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. Now I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I, I sure. want to ask you about your experience with, um, as you like it, Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the, the language, the Shakespearean language and how easy or difficult it was for you to absorb that material. Because I, I've read Shakespeare before. I've done it in school. And I tell you, it is probably the most, I mean, I would, I, I would probably have an easier time understanding calculus than I would Shakespeare, um, just because there's the density and the complexity of the prose. It, it's just almost insurmountable to me. So how did you approach it and, and what was your uh, learning curve like? You know, it, it's been steep the whole time, uh, right through school. Um, it, it, it's, it can be very steep, um, and you want it to be, right? So, you know, um, I had a really great guide, um, Nora Dunphy, who was a wonderful character actor, who was our text, uh, our text you know, Shakespeare text uh, coach um, in our, I think it was our second year at NYU. And she really, um, she and Deborah Hecht, who is a speech teacher, really, really informed me about, about rhythm and meter and, and sort of breaking it down into those beats. There's this, that I, iambic pentameter and five feet per line. And there's this, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up that happens in, in every line. You could actually do the whole canon of Shakespeare and this, this rhythm. And then when that rhythm is intentionally by Shakespeare hundreds of years ago, broken, like, but up, but up, but up, but up, but up, you know, when he throws something in that you must say in a different rhythm. There's something emotional that is happening there. It's like Shakespeare is directing you from the grave. So when you understand from a technical standpoint what's happening with the rhythm and the meter and you give over to that and you don't even understand what you're saying, you will find the emotionality of it. And eventually when you do understand the syntax and the, the, the glossary of terms that he has chosen to use in, in his day, the vocabulary, when that comes to you, as you keep studying and looking words up and asking your coach and teachers and colleagues and director about it, um, those things do eventually come together, and there's this emotional component that is almost dictated by, I'd say absolutely dictated by the rhythm uh, and by that writing. Um, there are times when you just can't take a breath until the end of this thought that's happening, regardless yeah. of what is on the page, and that forces something in your body. It's like, oh, I'm going to be struggling to finish the end of this line. So what's happening with this character that he's struggling so much here? 
um, it's almost like you're, you sort of give over to uh, William Shakespeare um, like it's music and you sing it in a sense. I, I find the same thing with Stephen Sondheim that, uh, that his, his approach to writing, it, it's, so, uh, it's so complicated. I think if you approach it just by the ideas and you approach it just purely technically, uh, you could, and, and you're listening to his, his I mean, you're, you're, you're approaching the meter and the rhyme and you're hitting your marks just technically, you will find what he's getting at in this piece. And then you have to back up and just say, okay, now I want to make a choice on top of this and make it my own. And it's going to be informed by my life and my emotional life, uh, my, my sensibilities. Those are things that happen as, as new layers come to the performance. So it sounds like you just start by saying the words, even if you don't understand the words. Sometimes, yeah. You know, sometimes it's a case. I think over time, you, either, you, there are a lot of repeat words and phrases. Uh, you get to know when you're reading a lot of Shakespeare, for instance, uh, you just get to know the language. It, it becomes more familiar and it becomes easier with each play that you do. And uh, the syntax uh, of things, the, the order of words, and the length of ideas is another big thing. You realize he's not done with this thought yet. You know, uh, the thought is longer than, than the, the verse that you're in. Um, once you sort of recognize that, it's easier to sort of delve in and break it down into acting beats that are, feel much more natural and contemporary to you. And yet you, have to, you don't want to reduce it to be like, hey, uh, you know, trying to make it like uh, it's David Mamet. It's, not, it's never going to be that. It's going to be something else. But if you know what you're saying and you understand that, and that with all the clues from rhythm and everything else and the context clues from the rest of the story, um, once you understand it and you give over to the emotional components of it, uh, I think the audience can really tap into it and, and they will understand. It's, I've seen Russian classical theater being done. I've seen Chekhov being done in, in Moscow. And I, I don't speak a word of Russian. And I, knew, I felt I knew exactly what was going on on an emotional level with that. It, it can be the same thing. How did you find your way to Russia? We were really lucky. Um, uh, the year that uh, I was my, it was actually my beginning of the third year, I believe it was at NYU, we did an exchange program with the Moscow Art Theater. So they had a, a group of Moldavian student, students coming over to spend a month or so, a uh, month, month and a half at NYU. And at the same time, we went to Moscow to Stanislavski's Moscow Art Theater. And, and it was during a very interesting time um, when it was just before the fall of, of the Soviet Union. And we didn't even know when we were there that, that my wife, I was just married uh, just a few weeks before I went over there. Um, in, in 91, we, uh, we had no idea about the there was a, a big problem with a gas, a fuel shortage for jet fuel. People weren't even sure we were going to get back into our own country uh, at the end of our trip. Um, <laughs> there, was a, there was a coup attempt. All these things were happening. And we're, you know, running around in the Moscow Art Theater and doing amazing training with the Russians and having a translator try to help us out with, you know, what we're supposed to be doing. It was incredible. Yeah. And then you, you also were in Ireland for a time, right? Yes, uh, that was in, during my undergrad days in, in 1987. Uh, I was uh, uh, allowed to travel with, with a group of Boston College students to the Abbey Theater in Dublin. And uh, it was a, a program, was, it was an Irish literature program with an acting performance component to it. Um, the, the focus was on O'Casey and Singh and Yates. So we got to do these performances in the, uh, the Peacock stage, which was sort of this little theater in the basement of the Abbey Theater, um, working with some incredible directors. And, and it was such a blast to be in the homeland, as we say. 
the old sod. Yeah. And, and so, um, can, can you tell us, um, how you made your way into television and film and, and why you think you chose that path after a live theater? Well, you know, it's, it's something I, I, I don't consider myself uh, uh, just a stage actor or just a film television actor. I, 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 I want to be able to do it all. I always have. Um, I've always done a mix of that. Um, I, the, thing, thing, the things years ago that I was most known for were tended to be on stage um, just because I've got bigger parts on, on stage, uh, like in passion for one. So when you do a Sondheim musical, you tend to be associated with the theater and, and, and musical theater, which I, again, I, I was surprised and felt really lucky to be able to do that. But, uh, you know, that said, I've, I've always had a, a, uh, a yearning to do uh, film and television anyway, because I knew that people back home would see that. There, I have friends and family that, that weren't able to come to New York to see me in theater or go out to San Francisco to see me in a show or a play. Um, so I knew that the, the access was there with, with movies and TV. So it's something I've always tried to do more and more of as I went along. And then in sort of the resurgence of my career, I left for many years and came back. Um, it, it happened to be this incredible project, City on a Hill, um, that came my way. Um, and, you know, just by how television works, that I guess that'll be something I'm known for as well. Yeah. So, so how did the City on a Hill project come to you? And am I not the luckiest guy? <laughs> this is this is one where I was I was in Boston at my desk. I, I've been I had been fundraising for about twelve years uh, for nonprofits, and I was uh, in a job for about a, had been in this job for about a year. Um, and uh, acting was the furthest thing from my mind at the time. But an old friend, the guy I grew up with, Jimmy Cummings, who was a really wonderful actor, writer, and producer. Um, he had a, a a good friend, Chuck McLean, who wrote this pilot, created City on a Hill, and uh, he and Chuck apparently had been speaking about me uh, for this role, Hank Signa, the state police detective. For a while, they asked me to read this thing. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm retired. And, you know, I used to say jokingly, retired from the business. I had left 20 years before that. And uh, I, 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 I'm, I've, got, I've got a job. Uh, you know, I can't leave the job. And they said, keep your, you know, keep your job. This will be a part-time gig for you. you know, every once in a while, it'll be like a pickup basketball game. Once in a while, we'll call you <laughs> and to do this thing. So, oh, great, part-time job. Okay, I'll read it. And, and I, I read it that night. And I have to say, um, and I've said many times, it's easily one of the best things I've ever read. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying play, movie script, you know, teleplay, whatever. Uh, it's just the, the dialogue, the story, um, the way it moved, the, the honesty in it, the, the authenticity was all there. Um, and the role itself was just one that just I felt would fit like a glove. I put it away. Because I said, no, I don't know if anybody's actually really going to call me on this. I, you know, you know, it was a month later, a casting director finally called and said, hey, can you come in? And you know, it was a Friday afternoon. Can you come in on Monday morning and, and, uh, and read for this thing? I said, no, I can't do it Monday morning. i got meetings. You know, can you do it late in the day? I went by <laughs> Monday night and, and went on tape for them. And I, I realized over the weekend, I went to sit down and learn the lines for this thing. And they were in my head from the first reading, the, the lines. It was pretty extensive dialogue and, and four scenes. And for some reason, this role was just in my head where I read it once. The dialogue was so sticky and so fun that it just stayed in my noggin. And uh, I, I just really sort of was able to find it. I, I guess they liked what they saw because they made it, they cast me in it and they said, yeah, do you have an agent? And I said, well, I, can, I know I can call someone um, that I used to work with. And my agent, uh, my old agent agreed to sort of uh, represent me on it because they, they wound up making it a series regular, which was a surprise to everybody. 
Oh, so it didn't start yeah. as a series regular. Then. No, it was going to be a recurring role. Every once in a while, like I said, it was going to be a part-time gig. It was going to shoot in Boston. <laughs> it was going to keep my day job and yeah. uh, work around my work schedule. Um, like they said, and, and suddenly it was not, you know, it was a series regular and it was, you know, I signed for, for several years um, as, as is typical, you know, five, six seasons um, for most people um, going into these projects. You never know if you're going to get picked up. It doesn't mean you get the work. It means that they have the option to use you or not use you, um, if you as long as the work is continuous for that length of time. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a big step. And, and I, I realized that I, 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 my kids were older and I had left the business to be able to raise my kids and be a husband. And my, my kids are older and my wife was very supportive of the idea. You know, how could I turn this opportunity down? Ben Affleck, Matt Damon. Kevin yeah. Bacon, Alvis Hodge, you know, an incredible group of people. Tom Fontana wound up being the showrunner, who's an amazing guy. I, I, I put him up there. He would probably uh, hate me for this, but I'll say, he, for me, he's up there with Stephen Sondheim in, in the television. He's such an incredible writer and storyteller. Oh, he's, he's, he's a legend. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and Chuck McClain is a guy who, that, that people didn't really know before this, and he will be thought of the same way when you see the, the work that he does and is capable of doing. So you were you were basically retired from acting. It sounds like at, at the time that you yeah. got this role. Yeah, I, uh, back in '98, um, I had come off. Uh, I think it was my second extensive uh, trip away from home. You know, when you when you, I was doing theater. Uh, I was doing a theater piece out in San Francisco, and I came home after three and a half, four months. And my kids were three years old. They were born right uh, at the be- very beginning of the run of Passion. Um, just after the Tony Awards, and uh, I, uh, they were just these toddlers. Um, they, my wife will let the kids stay out. They're twins, and, and they were uh, in their pajamas. Ten o'clock at night, I, the car dropped me off, and I put my luggage down, my guitar down, and I was giving them a hug, and they said, "Daddy, are you going to stay over?" And they thought I was no, I no longer longer lived. Oh my goodness! And I, I realized, you know, of course, how could they not see it that way? Uh, and I said, no, you know, I, this is, I live with you and I'm not going to leave you again. And I, I promised them, I promised myself and my wife um, that I would, I would work it around being home. And if I couldn't, I wouldn't do it at all. And, and very quickly, you know, I realized, you know, there's just so much out of town that if I want to give them everything that they need financially, that I would, I would need to make changes. You know, if I could have made my living in the business and stay in one city, I would have done that. But the, the more success you have, the, the less you see your family. Yeah. I think that's just the way it goes in the business. At least it, that was the way it was for me, and I was no longer willing to uh, allow them to sacrifice that. They deserve to have a father, and my wife deserves to have a husband who is home and a full partner in this life. Yeah. How difficult of a decision was that after being nominated for a Tony? Um, and also being in, you know, being a film actor, I think you had just uh, acted in Southie by that point, mm-hmm. right? Which yeah. won, won an award yeah. it, it's yeah. at SIF in Seattle, and yeah, it, it was it was a difficult one, but uh, I, I it was a, it seemed like a no brainer to me. Um, that said, you know, um, in a way, I, in all candor, it's like cutting off a limb sometimes, but you know, you know, it has to happen. Uh, it, it still as hard as it was to let this go it was it was an easy decision for me when i knew what the downside of it was you know if i have to choose between making a living doing something that i love uh and being home with my wife and children to me it was just a simple one and i have never regretted that uh, i you know deep down i i knew that if i ever did go back and sort of my quiet little fantasy um of doing that someday i knew it would be around the age i am now and in my 50s and and uh 
and I knew it would be a role that speaks to me and that I could really do something with like the one I was given, Hank Signal, City on a Hill. So that's, that's how fortunate I, I feel that it just kind of happened the way I, I fantasized and, at, at the right time. What a way to come back in a series like this. I mean, talk about larger than life character, Jackie Rohr, played by, played by uh, Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Um, and just surrounded by incredible actors. I mean, mm. everybody in that show, the writing, um, you know, in the city itself was a character, I thought. It is. And it'd be interested to know, it's, it's filmed in New York. That was the other big surprise. You know, uh, eventually when, when everyone was on board, they realized, you know, we really need to do this in New York. It, it is, uh, the, the pilot was filmed in, in Boston. And, and already everyone in the show uh, really understood their role and how Boston, being a Bostonian, informed their lives and their dialect and everything else. What a, what a cast. Everyone just brought a real authenticity, regardless of if they were even from the United States or not. We had at least two people that were not. Uh, Jill Hennessy and Mark O'Brien are Canadian. Right. Um, but they really tapped into it. And, and ultimately, we did have the show. The, the producers decided um, that they really needed to find places that looked like Boston in 1992. And it was easier to find those places in places like Staten Island and and, uh, and then in studios in Brooklyn uh, and also in Yonkers and places around Manhattan. So Boston has changed so much that it's really hard to find consistent locations that still look the same. Yeah. As you watched the show or you were in the show and, and seeing it you know, develop, did it resonate with you because you basically grew up in that same era in, in the Boston area? Yeah. I've told Chuck this uh, multiple times. This is, it was as if someone took, and I, I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to apply that, that, uh, you know, I was involved in, but any of the storyline is from my life. It certainly is not. Uh, <laughs> I hope not. I'm sure it's from other people's. Um, yeah. That said, it was like, there were, it was like my life was put into a blender and mulched up and just blown up into the air and it came down and this thing was built by it. just in terms of the colors the language, the way people relate to one another, the, you know, the F-bombs that you throw at each other, the F-you and this and that, you know, uh, the way people talk, even when they love each other, is so, uh, is so different from other neighborhoods in this country, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's because Chuck McLean is, is a Bostonian. He grew up in Quincy, which is, uh, you know, I guess you call it a suburb of Boston. It's, it's almost another neighborhood in Boston. Um, and the life that he led, the life that his family led, um, really influenced him. And again, I'm not implying that there is criminals in his background either, but, but he, <laughs> understood, he understood the language and the tone and, and he understood Boston. He's a real historian himself. Yeah. So we both came from that same neighborhood. And I think because of that, I was fortunate that the writers placed a lot of trust in me to kind of bring an authentic character to, to the screen. Yeah, it's interesting. Talk. It's really interesting to hear the, the dialect of, of that part of the country. And I, I've never even <laughs> been to Boston, but, you know, to, oh, to hear on, somebody, yeah. oh man, I'd love to. Um, but, you know, to hear somebody say, you know, in, in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, if someone says, mm -hmm. go fuck yourself, mm -hmm. it, it pretty much means one thing you know, go fuck yourself. But right, right. in Boston, you know, go fuck yourself. It, it, it can actually be a term of endearment. You know? It absolutely is. It, right. it often, it often isn't. It, it maybe right. more often isn't, but when you, you know, it's all context and, and right. uh, people are rough with each other because they know they can be. And, and they, I know that, you know, you know, it's, it's sort right. of an unspoken thing. We, we, hey, we're buddies. This is where we're going to do it. 
right? Did you find when you were in the same room with Kevin Bacon uh, that, you know, because his character was so uh, just out there and over the top that you had a, had to make sure that you didn't get run over basically in terms of the acting or how, how do you balance that and manage that type of energy in a room with someone like Kevin Bacon? You know, I think, I think, uh, I think people have described it as larger than life. I, I would say I, I, I wouldn't describe it as, is uh, Kevin's performance or that, that character. I, I think I know what you're saying, but, um, but his work in the show is, is over the top at all. But because I know people in my life, in my, even in my own family and friends, people I grew up with, fathers of my friends, everything else that, that were this way, were that colorful, were that big, you know, were that audacious and, and crass. Um, it, it's, it was, to me, it was very natural that I would have to deal with someone just like him. Um, and I, I, I never make it about, and I know that Kevin doesn't either, um, uh, like a competition or worry about, gee, I'm going to get run over in this one. Um, I just respond to whatever is there and I try to stay true to what my intentions are, what, what my character is feeling and, and doing, um, what's going on inside of me. And we just sort of let the sparks fly and, and let, let uh, people behind the camera worry about, gee, scaling this back or, or pumping this thing up and telling the story. We just tell it from our vantage point. And uh, it was always a real collaboration. And, you know, I, if, if someone gives me a real fastball, I've got to get out of the way or catch it and, and either return it or hit it over the fence. Um, so we all just sort of responded to each other. And I think it ultimately lifted the, uh, the show in, in a really wonderful way. This, this cast is one of the best I've ever worked with. Um, just um, Kevin Dunn, to have people like, uh, you know, James Remar, uh, Kevin Dunn, Kathy Moriarty, Sarah Shahi in, in this thing. And she's basically a regular on the show. She is a regular on the show and she's sort of listed as a recurring role, but she was in nine out of 10 episodes like I was. Um, she was great. To, she was, she's unbelievable, you know, to have those people there. Uh, Kevin described as, this is a real murderous role. You know, look at everybody in this cast. Um, look what they're doing with the thing. And that's a great way of saying it. Every person brought it, brought their A game to this production. Yeah. I, you know, one thing that I am still struck by to this day, even though it's been a long time since the Sopranos and the wire hit the scene. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, those were obviously game changers on television and, right. um, and I think changed the, the whole landscape of TV mm -hmm. and what it could do, but look what's happening. And, you know, city on a hill is another example of long form season long character arcs that right. just pull you in and you start, you know, just like with Tony Soprano, you're sympathizing with someone you should not be, <laughs> um, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you're kind of rooting for Jackie Rohr and yeah, you, you should amazing, be, you know, yeah. you should be rooting for, for Hank and, and not Jackie, but yeah. you, know, it's, and it's, you can uh, really root for everybody, you know, in, 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 yeah. in one sense, you know, yeah. You look at people like Jonathan Tucker, an amazing actor as well. You know, Mark O'Brien, these, they're not playing great guys, but you, you get to understand them in a way that not a lot of productions can do. You, you linger on them, you follow them home and understand where, why they make the decisions they do. And then you can judge it yourself. You know, you, you can judge yourself, Brian, you know, if you should be or shouldn't be rooting for these guys. Right. Uh, I like to think, you know, there's, there's a character for everybody to identify with in it. And, and not everyone is an angel and no one's perfect. Hank yeah. isn't perfect. He makes his mistakes and, and uh, uh, everybody's flawed. And, and that's the fun of it. No, they, there's no sort of 
Hollywood treatment of these characters. And it's, it, they get really ugly. They say nasty, horrible things to each other, about each other. They slander people, they attack people, and they, they, they hate people for, based on skin color and everything else. But uh, it's all there and all its ugliness. And somehow there's a humanity in, in every one of these characters. And, and that's a, a credit to an incredible writing team. You know, from, yeah. from Chuck and Tom to Michelle McPhee, who is an amazing new, new uh, a, a journalist in Boston who uh, writes best-selling books, crime books. Um, she was brought in to write. Um, there's just so many great people involved with the writing that you know, we just sort of took that writing and, and, uh, and wrote it. You know, we just wrote it in. So what are you, um, how, how old are your kids now, by the way? They're 25. So you a have a girl and a boy. Twins? Yeah, I do. Yeah, they're twins. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so um, are they in the arts? They're not. They're both uh, really, uh, they're art lovers. They, they love music. They love story. They love uh, film, TV. They, um, I, they weren't exposed to a lot of acting. Um, it wasn't a showbiz family by any stretch. You know, I, I left the business at a time that they barely remembered seeing me in something when they were three. Um, and we just brought them there just so they'd maybe remember me on stage and, you know, because I probably wouldn't go back. <laughs> and who knew? Um, but so they didn't grow up around the business and they're not Hollywood kids. So um, I think that's a pretty good thing for us. Um, yeah. They grew up around family and, and um, but they do, uh, they, they do both play music. My daughter writes music. My son actually does too once in a while, but my daughter writes and she sings, he plays guitar, she plays piano and guitar. Um, so they love the arts, uh, but they chose not to make it their thing. The thing that they do for a living. Yeah, uh, they they do other things and and uh, very self contained. They don't they don't seek the limelight. Uh, in fact, they shun the limelight. <laughs> they don't like a lot of attention. Right. Um, and I, you know, I think most most actors, I think, ironically, don't like the limelight. I think some do, and uh, and there's nothing wrong with that too. But I, I know so many shy actors. I I always have to sort of call people on and say, no, nah, yeah, we don't necessarily like public speaking. You know, that kind of thing. So was that as a parent? Were you kind of relieved? in hindsight that they did not try to uh, forge a path into theater or film? Uh, I, I, there have been times when I have been relieved. Yeah. Um, it, it is not an easy life. Um, it is a grind. And I, I speak with parents of aspiring actors all the time. And I, every once in a while, I, I still coach when I have time. Um, it is, it is a difficult life and you have to make yourself happy in and around that so that you can actually pursue it and, and sustain a life in the theater or on film, TV. But so I have been relieved uh, I, from time to time that they didn't choose that path. But that said, you know, I would have been proud and happy for them if they decided to really go for it. And I would have just said, if either one of them had come up to me in high school or into college and said, I want to I do this, um, I would say, do it, but don't, don't do it halfway. You, just don't bother if you're not going to go all in for it. And really, really go for it because it's the, the, there are too many great people who live and breathe it and need to do it. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna set yourself apart if you're if you're halfway in. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, work, the work is too hard, and the life is too hard to to do, to attempt to make it a part time job or an avocation. You know, it's got to be a real vocation. So, has City on a Hill and your role in that show opened up other opportunities for you that provide other acting roles and opportunities? You know, I, I have I have discovered that television is a very powerful, powerful thing. Um, the nice thing about it is in, in, in one night, uh, more eyeballs will be on your work. Uh, you'd be more visible than you may have been in, in five years of doing theater uh, or, or uh, 
you know, let's, who am I kidding? Decades of doing theater. You know, it's a big thing. It's international. The numbers are huge. Um, I think it was, I think it was three and a half million per episode, the average, uh, three and a half or four million viewers per episode. I, I could be way off on that, but that's a lot of people looking at your work. Yeah. So yeah, it just naturally is one of those things where, um, over time, uh, I've seen that play out. I'm getting meetings that I, I wouldn't have expected 20 years ago. Um, getting the quality of, of the roles, the, the size of the roles, um, and film and television particularly have uh, increased. You know, stage is something that people knew me from anyway. Um, but I, I do love this on camera stuff. Uh, I, I, I love the uh, I love the minutia of it. I love being able to get it right and reshaping it take to take all that stuff so that's really exciting for me to have these opportunities to to discuss projects um and to take on little jobs that uh, that not only feed my family but feed me as an artist and i, I was able to most recently do a, a really cool episode of, of a show called blue bloods on cbs it comes out on october 18th had uh, a lot of work with donnie Wahlberg. he and i did selfie together 22 years ago I and remember. uh yeah. Kind of a nice little mini reunion with Donnie. He was a great guy, wonderful actor, and a great leader on set too. Um, we had a ball doing this episode. So those are little things that just suddenly drop in your lap that that um, you know make this whole thing really fun and exciting. And I and I intend to do more as much as I can. I I see on your IMDb that you appeared with Charlie Hunnam on Jungle Land. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a film that is uh, I th- believe it's they've um, they must have finished uh, post production by now. Max Winkler, Henry Winkler's son, uh, is a really talented director and a lovely guy too. Uh, I was asked to do this. It's sort of a it's a sort of a buddy film where two or three people go across country um, in this very intense storyline, and they meet a list of characters uh, that we all sort of do these cameos in. So. Um, it was a really fun little turn in it. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Um, it was really, it's very dark, very fun, uh, funny and, and warm and moving. Really unique script that I'm, I'm dying to see. I, I think it's probably going to make the festival circuit this year. Wow. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting to hear that, you know, you acted in a film that you haven't seen. It's just odd to think, to think about yeah, it's just, you know. just the timing of it. Um, yeah. depending on the budget, you can get things out very quickly. And this was when actually I, I, I had filmed before I, I started and I was cast in, and was sort of waiting to start production on city on a hill. It was the fall before the winter we shot the city on a hill. Um, so it's one that just is in films just take a little bit longer to get out there yeah. and they want to put it out in the right time. So jungle land did not come to you because of city on a hill. It happened beforehand then. Yeah, it happened. Yeah. Well, it happened before production. I was cast in City on the Hill. We had we had shot the pilot, come to think of it, um, a year over a year ago, a year and a half ago. Um, and then we're waiting for it. To, uh, we got picked up for season one of City on the Hill. But before we started filming uh, this, I fit this um, small role, very small role in, in a, a nice cameo in, in this film that fall before we started into the rest of the season. As you look back on your career, starting with Shakespeare and, and going all the way through Broadway and TV and film and retirement and now being brought out of retirement to, mm-hmm. to act again, um, do you think about anything that you would have done differently if you could go back in time? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. Uh, I, I think the big decisions I made, I know I, I, I did pretty well. Um, there's not to say I don't have regrets about things, but 
uh, the big decisions, number one, to, to go into the business. Um, I knew I needed to do that and I knew I needed to leave to, uh, to be a family man. Uh, those are things I would never do over. I wouldn't give up those years on stage and on camera 20, 25 years ago for anything. Um, uh, the support of my wife and my family and, and now I have the support of my wife, my family, my kids. Uh, as I return to it. So it's something that was sort of perfect for me. Uh, along the way, you know, um, I think I probably would have worried less about career and just really allowed myself to enjoy the moments, uh, especially early on. Now, I, I just, I love every day that I get to do this job. Uh, but then I worried about, gee, am I doing enough to move myself forward in my career? Is this the right role for me? And I, I, would, I would turn down auditions or, or, you know, little jobs along the way that would sort of I don't know, you know, I, I think that I worried about the quality and in the end, it's like, you know what, I've seen really kind of shaky scripts turn into something really fun. I think I probably would have said yes more and, and no less, you know, uh, I, I think yes is a really powerful word. I had a friend who used to say to me, don't be afraid to say no, it's a very powerful word. Uh, and, and, and he's a very successful actor, um, friend who had, had advised me in this way. And I took that to heart and I said no to a few things and not that they became, you know, big star making things, but uh, I just probably would have had fun and learned from those. But I find now I'm at a point in my life where yes is a much more exciting thing. You know, take the risk, do something, worry about it later. If you're doing it for the right reasons, you're going to be able to do a great job on it. You feel like you're going to be uh, able to bring yourself to it fully. Say yes and do it. So if uh, our listeners want to find you, where should they look on social media and in upcoming projects? Yeah. At Jerry Shea uh, is uh, my handle on uh, Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. Easy to find there. I have a Facebook, uh, they call them, they call them a fan page, sort of a business page. So I'm on social media. Uh, JerryShea.com is a website, although I need, it's, I need to have someone update that. Uh, it's been a while since I've, I've had anybody work on that for me, but um, I'm very easy to find online uh, if you know how to spell my first name. Actually, my second, my last name too, J-E-R-E-S-H-E-A is an interesting spelling, Jerry Shea. Um, right. So yeah, I'm pretty easy to find out there. And then the, uh, the Jungle Land movie is going to be hitting festival circuits hopefully soon? Yes, that's what I understand. Max, uh, I went into Loop uh, to do some uh, ADR on that a few months ago, and he had said that he expects it'll be in the festival Loop this year. So nice. it may actually already be submitted. I'm sure he's, uh, I, I would guess that he has submitted it by now. So it's a really fun one. I would say check that out and uh, hopefully people enjoy. I think people enjoy a really, really wonderfully written episode of Blue Bloods coming up in October too. Well, I'll definitely be on the lookout for that show. Oh, thanks, Brian. Jerry Shea, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure, Brian. Thanks. Thanks. We hung in and we got this done. I'm glad we did it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time, and as always, go find your dream path.